Good morning. Yeah, it's actually 20 plus degrees this morning. It actually is a little bit warm. And, and the music this morning, what some great anthems to kick off our day. That, that new song, yeah, go ahead. That, that new song for me, I just think, you know, uh, there are days I don't believe that. I'm just going to be honest. But I'm going to sing that till I do. And, uh, and, and can I also just say, is there anybody who prays more genuinely than Aaron Fenelon? I'm with her every time she's in these services. Each prayer is different, and every one of them is from the heart. And I just feel like sometimes with her helping lead our church, I'm sitting with her when she's literally praying with God. And you see her up here, but that's a genuine heart before God, and that is so encouraging to hear. But hey, I'm supposed to preach this morning, right? We're in a conversation about relationship goals, and so I want to go ahead and encourage you to open up to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today, just like we were last week. You know, there's a difference between adaptability and life change. There is. When we talk about life change, it's exactly what it sounds like, a changed life. When we're talking about adaptability, that we're talking about a, a temporary adjustment to maybe fit in or belong. When we're talking relationships, that is. Growing up, I was an adapter. If I wanted to make more friends, I'd adapt to fit in, to belong. If I wanted to date someone, I would adapt to fit in or to belong. Uh, Some of me might change or twist a little bit, maybe be tweaked uh, the way I talked, the clothes that I wore, some of the things that I did or didn't do. And for me as a kid, I moved a lot. I moved eight times before I was even in high school. Different communities, not different houses. And so for me, I was always making friendships. I was always trying to get to know people. But with every change, uh, as I look back, something becomes more and more apparent about me is that I adapted, but I did not change, at least not deep down inside. Flip the script for a little bit. As we got older, we began to realize things like the power of peer pressure. And as you began to think about our relationships with my adaptability, I began to make friends easily. But I also began to realize how I could win friends and influence them to the things that I liked or didn't like. Others will adapt to fit in and make things happen. And if I'm honest... Even in dating relationships, I think I would change or try and tweak who I was, and a lot of times I would try to change them, just being transparent today. The truth is, uh, we don't really have the ability to change anyone but ourselves, And oftentimes, we negotiate ourselves in the hopes of a relationship when the reality is we should stand strong in our identity, who God has made us, who we were called to be. And no great life change happens unless it happens deeply on the inside. And we believe some strange stuff when it comes to relationships. Need uh, need more joy in your life? We say things like, get a dog, right? Uh, Are are you lonely? Find a friend. Need motivation? Start dating. We think externally about internal transformation that needs to happen. Adaptability or life change? Adaptability has given us the ability to survive certain, certain circumstances. It's given us a mentality, but life change 
forges an identity in who we are in Christ and who we are before each other. And I pray that that identity of who we are in this series becomes more and more anchored in Jesus. Relationships are meant to complement us, not complete us. The only relationship that will ever complete us is found in our relationship with Jesus. So I want to take an assessment this morning. I want to pause with a question that if life change only happens in the internal, deep recesses of our lives, no one can change us or upgrade us. Our value is found only in Jesus and the words that he teaches. If we understand that to be true, then this is the question we have to ask ourselves today. What do I bring to the relationship? What do I bring to the relationship? Whether this is friend, whether this is family, whether this is spouse, whatever it may be, the question of our identity begins with us and our relationship with Jesus. That's where it begins. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 3. And I want to remind you what we tried to stress last week. That at the heart of every great relationship is founded on our relationship with Jesus. And when we know who we are in Jesus, we are more naturally driven to be the person we were called to be. So we shared this principle. Followers of Jesus set relationship goals from their relationship with Jesus. Meaning at the core of who we are, the convictions by which we embrace, the lens by which we look through life filters through who we are before God and who God has called us to be to the world around us. Our walk with God should set in motion a mission with others, how we treat our friends, how we live with family, how we love the ones we want to call our spouse. And we want more for them than we want for ourselves. A sacrificing, serving relationship like Jesus set as an example for us. So we need to be reminded that we build our relationships on what we prioritize first. We build our relationships off of what we prioritize first. I gave you some examples last week, remember? Three things that destroy relationships. Money, sex, and power or control. And so if we're going to assess where we are in these conversations, we have to begin to realize where our priorities lie when we approach relationships. Colossians chapter 3 is a letter to a group in Colossae. It's a young church, meaning young in their faith, multi-generations, people who have given their life to Jesus, but they're now living out this identity of who they are in Christ. Forgiven, redeemed, restored, transformed. And they're recognizing that in their everyday rhythm of friendship, family, and spouse or loved ones, they're in these dynamics, they're being challenged because the context of their culture is not expressed in the life that they're being called to. And so Paul, the apostle, is talking deeply about this transformed life. 
Last week, we looked at the first four verses of this passage. Today, we want to pick up in verse 5. And if you don't have your seatbelts on, you probably want to put them on now because it jumps directly into challenge, confrontation, and conflict of culture. Here's what it says, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, a sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, or literally worshiping something above your relationship with God. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. In your life, you once lived. But now you must also get rid of yourselves of all things as these, anger and rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, meaning Jesus. Here, uh, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all, and Christ is in all. I love where this passage finishes, because it finishes in a statement about identity. Of all the things that could divide us, of all the things that may want to label us or define us, Paul says it has no place here. Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, black or white, we, we, we will not spend our time trying to uh, defend and polarize our own personal posture, but we stand in the unifying nature of what it means wherever we come from, whatever our life is about, being found in Jesus, that that is our common ground, that we all have a relationship that is founded in the very nature of God, our creator, through Jesus. But Paul begins to speak to something. In chapter 2, he talks about how we're dead in our sin. But in chapter 3, he's talking about how we are dead to our sin. Those are two drastically different conditions of the heart. When we are dead in our sin, we are waiting for a savior. We are waiting for rescue. We are entrapped, enslaved. We are living for ourselves and find no way to live in the abundance of what God has called us to. But when we're dead to our sin, we live with a perspective of victory, of hope, of knowing who we used to be and how we used to live no longer enslaves us, but now we stand redeemed and transformed Because of the power and the work of God in us. And Jesus died for us so that we might be forgiven. And we learn to die to ourselves so that we might live for him. Romans 12 talks so quickly about this. Paul, the author of Colossians, is talking to a church in Rome and begins to challenge them that because of God's mercy... Uh, They should offer themselves as a living sacrifice, meaning they're surrendering their lives to be put to death. Why? Because they don't want to try and conform any longer to the pattern of this world. They don't want to try and fit in with the uniform that the world would call us to live in. They want to live as people who think the way Jesus would think. 
And so Paul, hoping that they catch this, no, demanding that they understand this, Paul gives three very strong action points about how to live out our faith before God and one another. And the first command that he gives of his three commands are this. Put it to death. Put to death. Verses 5 through 7 in the original language are violent and graphic. It's that moment when you begin to read into these words and he expresses five vices of the heart that are intrinsically private. Meaning we're not going to see them in the everyday rhythm of our lives. And so Paul speaks with a candor that he says, put it to death. Kill it and keep it dead. It's a challenge because these five vices capture us. He lists them out very quickly. He talks about uh, sexual purity, anything that is outside of the covenant of marriage, impurity, a lack of a moral compass or purity of self, lust, the uncontrollable desire that we want, impulsive in nature and in its response, evil desires, a general longing to live for our own benefit, even at the cost of others, and greed, a want with disregard for others. These vices capture us. And when we think about the world that we live in today, we live in a world that encourages this deeply. What we know to be true of our own lives is this though. What we invite to our bed and what we allow in our head deeply impacts the condition of our hearts. Let me say that again. What we invite to our bed and what we allow in our head deeply impacts the condition of our hearts before our friends, before our family, and before those we say we love. And so Paul is trying to draw a line to kind of wake up Christ followers because they live in a culture that is fanning into flame their appetite. What we hear often is, well, it's such a gift from God. It's natural. It's awesome. And all of that is true. But Paul is also trying to remind us that in the self-controlled, spirit-filled life, our appetite is rooted first and foremost in our lordship to Jesus, meaning Jesus helps us define how we live out our life. Now, this list is not all-inclusive. But it is very relevant to every one of us. We live in a culture that's consumed with sexual pursuit, of gaining more for ourselves and having anything that we want. We don't live in a season of trying to say no. We live in a time to only say yes. And so when Paul calls a timeout in Colossae, It even more so echoes in our culture that that's absurd. That's not normal. That's not who we should be. And Paul is saying, put it to death. Don't let it rise back up. Put it down and keep it down. 
Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You know my heart is nine times out of ten as much grace as possible. But there is a warning that Paul is trying to give us. That not everything that attracts us should be something we act on. There are some things that literally are unhealthy for us. I tell this to my boys all the time. I told them, I said, you know I'm attracted to women, right? Well, yeah, Dad, you married Mom. You realize my attraction to women didn't stop when I got married. It always gets awkward at that point when I talk to my boys because they assume that marriage fixes that. So Paul says you've got to put it to death. Some of us would say, well, wrath of God, well, is this a, this is, we reap what we sow? Is this about the consequences of our life? Is this about the everyday rhythms and patterns that come from bad decisions? While that plays out, that's not what Paul's talking to. Paul is literally pointing to the return of Jesus Christ, that every one of us will stand before God to give an account for the lives that we live. And so as stark as he is about putting it to death, He's also as strong about the conversation about what will we do and who will we be when we stand before God. When I lived in Florida, they used to tent houses. Do you know what tent, tenting houses is? It's when an exterminator comes to your house and finds out that maybe you've got a, a house that's mostly made of wood and termites have had their way in it. And literally what they do is they put these tarps that completely enclose and cover up your house. They take like these giant clips and they clip the tent together so that when they go in and fumigate, that the entire house and everything around it would be killed. They then go in and your carpenters go in and they repair whatever wood's been damaged. They put the house back together if there's things that need to be fixed. But then they also go to the next step where the exterminator goes around your house and places receptacles in the ground to prepare the ground and everything around it to be a barrier so that what was destroying the house no longer can even get into the house. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul's talking about when it comes to these issues of the heart, whether it be our greed, whether it be our lust, whatever it may be, that we would put it down and then put barriers in our lives so that it does not come back. And friends, we live in a time where with our phones and media, everything is at our fingertips. And we have more opportunity to consume than ever. And we're not better for it. We're not better for it. I need to keep going. Second command is this. Get rid of. Get rid of. If we live in a world that is... uh, pursuing this idea that is contrary to a relationship of Jesus, then we need to realize that in verse 8, there are some things we're going to have to throw out. We're going to have to get rid of it in our lives. Hebrews 12 reminds us, verses 1 and 2, that we should throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. And so Paul gives five vices that are external in their nature, meaning you see these boil up, you see this happening. You may not always be able to see somebody's greed. You may not always be able to recognize somebody's lust, but you know the face of anger. You know the face of rage. You know the tone of malice. You understand what that looks like because it bears fruit that is very public. 
And so Paul says of anger, it's the brewing and stirring of the pot. Rage is the sudden outburst, the uncontrolled, unplanned, losing of self-control. Malice is that vicious spirit that desires to injure the neighbor or people close to you. Slander is to speak falsely of someone else to destroy their character. And filthy language is about foul-mouthed abuse. Uh, See, some people see that filthy language and they go, oh, I have to quit swearing. And while I would encourage you to do that, what the author is talking about is how we speak with words, whether they be swear words or abusive words or damning words or condemning words or judgmental words or controlling words, that we would learn how to speak in a way that does not destroy the people around us. So this plays out whether you're a coach or a coworker or a business owner. These expressions of friendship, of family, of love begin to now bear fruit, public fruit. And literally what Paul is saying is you've, you've got to get rid of them. You've got to throw them out. And then he goes directly into this to live in truth. He says the words in 9 and 10, do not lie. If you read it in the original, what it's literally saying is stop lying to yourself and to others about the life that you're living. Cool it. Lying is not just words, but it's also saying one thing and doing another. It's also in your actions. It's the false life that you're living, expressing a false identity about who you were created to be in God. That's why when Paul talks to the Ephesians church, he says, you know what? You must put, put off all falsehood, throw it off, and speak truthfully to one another. Christian speech is not simply determined solely by whether it is true or false, but whether it ultimately helps or harms people. And Paul is saying, you know what? Learn to speak in a way that who you say you are is who you are. May it give a true witness to who God is and who you are called to be. Oftentimes as a kid, I would play outside and for whatever reason, I'd come home covered head and toe with mud or dirt. Anybody else that kid? And ironically, every time I came home covered in mud, my mother never opened the door and said, hey, have your way. Oh, that's who you are. You're just big, messy Danny. Just come in and mud the place up. No. Mom would often say, take off your clothes, leave them here, and I'll take care of them. And oftentimes as a kid, whether it's in the garage or the mudroom or whatever, I'd strip down to my skivvies and I'd run upstairs, I'd take a shower, and I'd never have to worry about those dirty clothes because my mom would come in, take those clothes, do whatever she had to do to get them ready to be soiled again. Right? And Paul is saying, you know what? You've got to throw off and get rid of. This just isn't something that you need to hand over to somebody to rewash. You should probably even throw them away. If it's going to die and be dead, then when you throw it off, you should never put it back on. It's ruined. 
But how many of us go back to putting back those old worn-in clothes? How many of us go back to that comfortable pair of jeans or that favorite sweatshirt? And even though you know it may capture you or pull you away or it may bring you back to a side of yourself that you don't necessarily love or appreciate, it's what we know. And so we wear it because it seems to fit well. And Paul says, no, there's better clothing for you to wear. There's a better life for you to live. This is what we are to experience in our walk with Jesus, is that we would leave our old self behind and that he would wash our lives, redeem our lives. This is not simply uh, moments of daily little bitty choices to do the right thing, but it's literally an exchange of our life. That what we have soiled and what we have ruined and what needs to be restored, we would hand over and God would now give us a new life and a new way of living. This is not something we can just tweak. We can't simply just adjust a moment. But it is a wholesale exchange that we would surrender our lives back to God. Stop the tweaking Be transformed and let your life be changed forever. Because our new identity is the constant putting to death of this old way of life so that we can now live transformed in a new life with Christ. Being renewed and being empowered, being fueled by God's spirit, not our strength, to become a new self. This means... Jesus must be the priority relationship in our life. There's nothing else that can take his place. Every relationship is secondary to the pursuit of Jesus. Therefore, our priority relationship is with Jesus. When it comes to our identity, specifically in relationships, But even in the application of our pursuit of wealth or sexual intimacy or control and having life the way we want, our priority relationship is with Jesus. It's not a thing. It's the only thing. When we begin to prioritize several things, the thing ultimately only becomes something until it eventually becomes nothing. What God wants us to do is to secure our relationship with him so that our relationship with others might be the way he'd want it to be. The truth of the matter is, we can't change anybody but ourselves. And true life change only happens in our relationship with God. And the best indicator of who you will be in a relationship with others is the history of who you were before that relationship began. You wrestling with dating, making a close friend, partnering with someone in business? Ask yourself who you were before them and who you think you'll be after them and ask the same thing of them. Who have they been in their life and who will they be in the future? Some of us may be sitting here today with key relationships and questions and this may seem like a somewhat of a steel wool conversation. It has stirred up in you some aggravation or maybe even irritation and that's not God's heart today. 
God's heart is to speak jealously towards you about how his love for you is the greatest experience of love that you could know. And maybe you're filled with a past that has had you entangled. Maybe you're filled with a moment in life where you question, you're fearful of what the next steps may be. Or maybe it's just a candid conversation of reality that you've spent your life tweaking, 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 and never surrendering towards transformation. The only real life-changing relationship that we'll ever experience is with Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A relationship with others will never resolve the problems of our sins. A relationship with others can't remove our remorse or lead us towards repentance. A relationship with others won't spark a heart for Jesus. So here's what we need to recognize. Christ, meaning Jesus, is only in the relationship if he is in the hearts of his people. Jesus is not an additive. Jesus is not a tweak to a behavior. Jesus is the Lord of our lives. That's who he's called to be. That's how he best fits in our lives. We've been taking a moment to kind of apply these passages with this conversation that Eric gave us a couple of weeks ago when we started talking about understanding scripture. We talked about three ways to apply it, up, out, and in. And we look, we look at this passage and we look up to God, we realize, we recognize that God deals with our sin seriously and calls us to make a clean break with sin through the power of Christ. Sin is so real that Jesus would give his life provide forgiveness for our sins and life everlasting and the resurrection power to overcome our sin and death. But there was a price that was paid through his life. When we look out at the world around us, we must be reminded that everyone has once walked. Every one of us has fallen short. But now because of Jesus, we have the chance to live in a new way. Sin does not have to define us. Our past does not have to control us. Our reputation does not have to precede us. So we have to be reminded that we are no different than anybody else. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we all are given that same grace. A new step, a new foundation. No one is perfect. So let's not ascribe to demanding or judging people as perfect, but as people being made whole, completed in Jesus. Last of all, when we look in, we have to be reminded that we cannot change our past, but we also don't have to live there either. God is walking us towards a new life. May we put it to death, may we get rid of it, and may we live in the truth that we find in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's move to our time of response. Aaron made it very clear that if you're new with us today or if you call this place your home, that we use the app. We use the app for decisions of faith, a place to ask questions, 
And so I would encourage you to go to your app store, whatever it may be, and look up first Champagne or Urbana and download that app because there on the Sundays portion, you can actually fill out a connect card. And we will pray with you. We will encourage you. We will walk with you. We will answer your questions. And maybe today, maybe something today doesn't sit greatly with you. I get that. I get that. I don't sit well with that passage. And maybe you want to sort it out. Maybe you want to walk through it a little bit. We would be glad to do that. As friend, as co-workers in the mission of the gospel, we would stand together with you. No one's perfect. But we can chase the perfect one together. You know, Jesus, before he died, gave his life and paid our price. He sat at a meal with his closer followers and he instituted what we call communion today taking an old Jewish tradition of Passover reminding us on how God was the lamb that saved the people in, his, in Egypt and he, he started this, this celebration where he said let's celebrate it now because of what I'm about to do and he took the bread and he said you know this is my body it's broken for you take and eat and in the same way he took the juice a reminder of the blood that was put over their doorpost as a marker that the sacrifice of the lamb had provided new life he said this wine is a it's a marker of my blood poured out for you take and drink And as followers of Jesus, we do this as, as a practice that the early church did. That when they gathered in the first of every week, one of the moments they prioritized was to pause and to reflect in a meal on the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Because as believers in Jesus, this is the monumental marker of why our past no longer has any power and our future lies in the hopes of Jesus. Last of all, I'd like to encourage you to give. We see the generosity of God show up that it helps us serve people within our community. We see the generosity of God's people continue to advance the mission of Jesus through mission partners most foundationally it fuels the mission of us to live as the witness of Jesus to the world around us if you want to give today you can use the give and respond boxes that are on your way out or use the app but what we want to encourage for you today is that every moment of what you think say and do in whatever relationship you may be found next to Live it. Live it as the surrendered nature before Jesus. Let's stand and continue to worship.